0: hi everyone welcome to episode 129 of the book cougars two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read i'm emily and i'm chris we want to welcome our behind the scenes new sound editor pat keogh welcome pat so great to have you on our book cougars team yes we're very thankful Chris will be extra thankful when she doesn't spend Sunday behind the computer this weekend. So, <laughs> Yes. Well,
1: I developed a bit of a wrist problem between the editing and schoolwork. And I'm so happy that we met Pat, who's going to be helping us with the editing, or doing the editing, I should say. And we met Pat at the Menjen Lee event we did at R.J. RJ Julia. Julia a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. yeah, the story I like to tell about Pat is he gave us one instruction as he put these little mics on our um, shirts. He said, if you could just try not to touch the mic, that would be really helpful. And so, of course, the first thing I do was introduce myself, hi, I'm Emily and smacked my chest, you know, as <laughs> if people didn't know who was talking right into the mic. So that was my opening um, to Pat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll we'll try not to smack our chest, Pat. Right,
1: that's right. Make any strange (laughs)
0: sounds. But we are very grateful to have him helping us.
1: Yes, and I wanted to start today with just a really short poem. You know, I've I've talked before about the, the reading synchronicities that I've had and that we all tend to have at different times in our reading lives. And I've been reading the poems of Lucille Clifton, And I've talked about her poems in the past. And in my archives class the other day, we're on a chapter, we're talking about memory. And the professor put up one of Lucille Clifton's poems that talks about memory. And this is the poem. The title is, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories. And I keep on remembering mine.
0: Oh, my.
1: Yeah, powerful, very short, very powerful. Very.
0: I love that. I might have to put that one up somewhere. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the the chapter, it's about memory and whose memory and how we remember. And then our next unit is going to be on community archives, which are archives that were started by usually small communities that wanted to document their existence. And this could be anything like the Lesbian Herstory Archives in New York that focuses on lesbian lives. They started in the 70s, and then there could be small running communities. I'm going to be talking about a very unique archive in a later segment, but it was really great to see Lucille Clifton's name pop up in that way and a slide with her photo in that poem.
0: Thank you for that.
1: So what are you currently reading, Chris? Well, I'm currently reading our read-along book with Jenny for the upcoming Reading Envy podcast discussion. Then we'll be recording with Jenny for her podcast. So I'm reading When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. This is the Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry edited by Joy Hardrow and others. So I've been dipping around in that and enjoying it very much and being surprised by a lot of things. And then I'm also re- dipping into Mary Oliver's A Poetry Handbook. And this is a prose guide to understanding and writing poetry. But if you're, not, if you're not a writer and you're interested in learning more about poetry, don't let the writing poetry part scare you off. Because I think this is very smart writing about poetry, but it's, it's understandable.
0: Yeah, as, as her poetry tended to be as well. Yes, so what about you? What are you currently reading? I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass, the book that we're reading for our read-along with the book Cougars with with Jenny from Reading MV. The full title is Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I'm also listening to it, and she does narrate the book, which I thought was really cool. I didn't realize that she was the narrator until I started it. And I just thought I'd read just a few sentences to give people an idea, and this is just from the preface. A sheaf of sweet grass bound at the end and divided into thirds is ready to braid. In braiding sweet grass, so it is smooth, glossy, and worthy of the gift, a certain amount of tension is needed. As any little girl with tight braids will tell you, you have to pull a bit. Of course, you can do it yourself, by tying one end to a chair or by holding it in your teeth and braiding backward away from yourself. But the sweetest way is to have someone else hold the end so that you will pull gently against each other, all the while leaning in, head to head, chatting and laughing, watching each other's hands, one holding steady while the other shifts the slim bundles over one another, Each in its turn. Oh, that's great. That's beautiful. So I am just so excited. I'm going to really start digging into this. I've already listened to about an hour, but I'm going to go back and forth because I found even just listening to the preface, I was like, oh, I want to pick it up and read that section she just read again, you know. Yeah, for sure. That was great. I love that, the imagery of that closeness and the intimacy. Yeah. And just braiding in general. I love the mm. idea of it. Although I was never very good at braiding my own hair. <laughs> but just to remind people that we are going to um, be having our Zoom discussion about braiding sweetgrass on May 30th, email us at bookcougars at com. We have a couple spots left, I think. And I don't think, I know, we have a couple of spots left. And we'll be recording our conversation with Jenny on June 2nd. So if you want to participate in the conversation with, by Zoom, or you can get on our Goodreads thread, all of that information will be in the show notes for this episode. Great. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I'm also reading The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. This book is getting a lot of press. It was just on the cover of Book Page. page. She was a a Booktopia author I met. This is her third book, and she reminds me a little bit of Ann Patchett in that each of her books is vastly different. Hmm. And this one is about, it's told from two characters' points of view. One, back in the day, is a young woman who learns how to fly airplanes and circumnavigates from the North to the South Pole. And then the other character is in the late 2000s, and she's a famous movie star who's going to be playing this woman in a movie. That's such a great premise. It's so great. And her writing, is so good. And all I want to do is be in bed reading the book. And I've been working really hard lately. And yesterday was this beautifully rainy, gray day. And all I wanted to do was read. And I didn't get to at all, which was very sad. You're going to feel so good once this deadline is over. Yes, I cannot wait. You might not see me for a week. I might just be in bed reading. (laughs) You'll see pizza, the pizza delivery come once a day. (laughs) Well, as long as
1: the door keeps opening for the pizza, I won't worry about you. (laughs) So what did you just read? I read a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. This was the choice of my book club, my in real life currently on Zoom book club, we read The Cask of Amontillado, which was a short story Poe published in 1846. It is a really creepy story. It's about a man who is seeking revenge on someone who has given him a thousand insults. So from the very first lines, you know that this guy is prone to hyperbole, (laughs) and is, you know, kind of unreliable in a lot of ways. And it's really creepy. They go down uh, into the cellar that has, you know, a lot of moisture coming in and that effervescence that happens. And it's during carnival. And so one of the guys has this jester costume on. And it's just such a creepy juxtaposition. I mean, it made me think of that Batman movie with the Key actor. Fighter. Yeah, in his Joker, mm-hmm. you know, with the, yeah, it made me visualize a jester looking like that. And I won't talk about what happens because I know this is, you know, way over 100 years old, but I still believe in spoilers because it's one of those stories you like
0: to experience the unfolding of. I got creeped out just when you said Edgar Allan Poe. Isn't that funny? (laughs) (laughs) And I always think of Halloween when I hear
1: his name. He certainly helped establish my creepy side of the Halloween tradition because I remember like Vincent Price, Christopher Plummer, I think too, like reading his poems And hearing them around that time of year. And I think at school, they probably had us read him during that time of year. I
0: bet you're right. I bet that it's like deep in my my psyche that I don't even realize because it was placed Mm. there in like middle school or something. Right? Yeah. 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 So
1: if there's a post scholar out there who wants to fill us in, yeah, please hit us too. up. We'd love to talk with you.
0: Well, I just read That Summer by Jennifer Weiner. This one comes out um, May 11th, the day that this episode will be dropping. And, you know, she's an author that typically comes out with like a big, thick for summer reading. I would put this one in that category. Um, It surprised me a little bit though. It starts in um, Cape Cod and you think, oh, this is going to be some sort of fun love story in Cape Cod. But she's really taking on the idea of the behavior we saw with the Brett Kavanaugh situation. Mm-hmm. And so it starts off as a young woman, as an au pair in Cape Cod, and she has a traumatic experience. She's raped. Um, so trigger warning for folks about that. And what Jennifer does with this book is so fascinating because it's told from two women's points of view. One is the wife of the man who, who raped this other woman, who's the other character point of view. Hmm. So it's told from the point of view of the woman who was raped, and the point of view of the woman who ends up marrying the man who raped this woman as a young teenager. I shouldn't say young teenager, he was, um, I think, college age, or just entering college. So what an interesting... Idea, because I don't know about you, but a lot of times when you hear about men, you know, during the Me Too movement, my mind often wanders to the family of that man and the experience for them with this. And sometimes people make assumptions that that man is a bad apple and always has been a bad apple. And, um, you know, what a terrible life that his family must have. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes... People have redeemed themselves, maybe. I mean, that might be a strong word. I don't know if you can redeem yourself from assaulting somebody. But, you know, I'm just saying that it's not as if they maybe continue that behavior as they get older. Those are things I wonder about. And a lot of times, the women that surround the person who is problematic, their lives are ruined as well. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting for her to explore that in this novel. I don't really want to give any spoilers. I just want people to know that that's what it's about. I think that she is very good at character development. And so I really appreciated that part of the story. And also it was very thought provoking for me to think hmm. about all of that yeah sounds like as I say a rip from the headlines kind yes, of yes it is it is and and also you know she really looked at the point of view of this woman who'd had the trauma and realizing that by coming to terms with what happened to her she was going to impact the lives of other women who have a relationship with this person in a different way mm-hmm. so I thought that was really interesting as well yeah I suppose the
1: inverse is true You know, you always hear about the abuser who is charming out in the world and who is abusive behind closed doors and the opposite Mm is true too. somebody who is, you know, a delightful partner and father behind closed doors can be a monster in real life and every variation in between.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and she looks at some of the gray here, I think. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a much meatier, heavier story than I anticipated, but I did really enjoy it. Again, it's called That Summer by Jennifer Weiner, and it will be pub day the day that this episode airs. Well, I read a novel as well.
1: I read The Ghosts of Harvard by Francesca Saratella. This book came out in 2020, and I think it just had its publication anniversary this week. I've talked about this one last time as a gift from Linda last holiday season. And I heard that it was like a thriller, a mystery thriller. I would not categorize it as a thriller because I think it's a little too slow paced to be a thriller. At least that's how I read it. And I did read it consistently every day till I was finished. I know sometimes when I You don't have time to read necessarily every day. Books can seem like they're really lagging. I didn't feel like the book lagged at all, but if you pick this one up and think this is going to be a page turning really quick, oh my God, it's finished before I (laughs) even realize it's a mystery is what it is. So it's a character named Katie who's a freshman at Harvard. The book opens with her and her dad and her aunt who's in a wheelchair dropping her off at Harvard. And you find out that the reason her mom isn't there is her mom is so upset that she's chosen to go to Harvard because just within the last year, her brother, who'd been a senior at Harvard, killed himself. He committed suicide. Mm. So you find out that Katie is going to Harvard to in part find out what happened to her brother. So throughout the story, you find out more about the family background and Katie finds out a lot about what happened to her brother through various living people and others. Mm, and it dropped a little, little mystery there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called the ghosts of Harvard. So um, yeah. And I, I was hoping for a lot of atmosphere, and it's not, this, not that this wasn't atmospheric, but I think it would probably have a lot more meaning for somebody who is really familiar with Harvard campus, which I'm not. I've only walked through campus once. But she name drops a lot of places and describes certain places. So I think if you're familiar with Harvard, you'd probably even get more out of it than I did. But she really explores a lot of the social aspects of being at college and then the history of Harvard, the, the history of slavery at Harvard that presidents of Harvard College had slaves really which is not something that is talked about a lot or it hadn't been until recent years when they a professor there started a, a seminar on the topic of slaves at Harvard and there's been at least one book published about slavery and US academia in the author's note, she lists a book called Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. It's by Craig Steven. Another thing that's in this book, too, is a lot of science. So she did a really cool job of combining so many interesting things like the history, the family struggle with mental illness, And then science, physics in particular, which was really fun to read for me, who's not really a science minded person. I thought she did a really neat job. And I really
0: loved a lot of these characters that she brought to life. Do you know if there's going to be another book with those characters? Or do you think this is a standalone?
1: You know, I don't know. I have no idea. And I haven't looked into her website or social media to see what she's working on now. I know she's published a lot of books with her mom, mm-hmm. uh, Lisa Scottolini They've done a lot of nonfiction books together. This Ghost of Harvard is her debut novel, and I think it's a really strong first novel. You know, there might be a clunky thing or two, but there's nothing that got in the way of the reading pleasure of this book. So she created a really interesting world and brought up a lot of fascinating topics, and I thought did a great job with them, with things like mental illness and how that affects both the person who is experiencing it and the family. And she does it in really psychologically healthy ways. So again, I, I do recommend this book. For me, it wasn't like a hugely fast page turner, but I kept reading and I kept looking forward to getting back to the book. Again, that's Ghosts of Harvard by Francesca Saratella, available now. And then the other thing I read, it was actually an audiobook I listened to called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones by James Clear. This book came out in 2018 and apparently is a huge bestseller. I was looking for a short audiobook to listen to, and this is one that came up. And as regular listeners know, Emily and I both tend to like to listen to self-help, self-improvement type audiobooks a couple times a year to give us that boost. Uh, This book, you know, there were a lot of things that I was already familiar with, techniques and things like that. But one of the things he said I thought was really interesting is that to be successful in whatever you choose to work on, you have to be able to tolerate the boredom of it. And I thought that was a really great point. And he's like, that's the difference between a professional and and somebody who doesn't pursue their passion that way as if they can tolerate those boring times because it inevitably happens especially if you've been doing something for a very long time and you have a high level of skill with it, you reach that point where it can get a little bit boring. And he said, studies have shown that actually at around that point, some people's performance does drop off because of that. So he talks about being able to tolerate the boredom, which I thought that's an excellent point, because not everything
0: that you're going to work on is always going to be exciting. Yeah. And I think there's a misconception that if you're working on something that you're passionate about, you'll always be in that, stage of, you know, passionate fervor. And it's like, well, no, actually, there's a lot of drudgery to perform your passions. So that's a really interesting point. You know, there's always the grunt work and things like that, that you have to get through. It's funny, because I don't think about the word bored very often. Like I used to use that word when I was a kid. And now it's a word that I I kind of dream of the idea of being bored because I associate it with choices and being able to choose different things. But really, that's probably not the right way to look at it. And he's certainly not using that word in that way here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it could totally happen, though. Like if you do get bored, I I guess that's
1: the thing. Like if you do get bored with certain things, you're going to stop doing it and move on to something else Mm -hmm. or keep letting your focus be pulled away from what you're trying to work on. Because you do have those other choices. And I guess what he's saying is, you know, professionals and people who reach their personal peaks are people who can deal with that and still stay focused. Right. You have to push through it. Or no. And I guess, too, like once you're doing it long enough, you understand the rhythms mm-hmm. of whatever the project is because you know any big project if you've done things enough times like writing a research paper <laughs> you know there's going to be times when it's not as exciting as others so again I listened to it as an audiobook and I really enjoyed it as an audiobook I have no idea how it reads in the audiobook he gives references to his website in different pages of the website where you can get downloadable handouts oh that's cool so Again, that was Atomic Habits by James Clear. Did you have any Biblio adventures? I did. I had a couple, actually, that were really awesome. How about you? I did, too. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in and talk about one that I attended with our buddy, Heather Harper-Ellett, who wrote Ain't Nobody, Nobody. Awesome mystery novel that we both loved. She did a talk for the Riders League of Texas. The title was Channeling Anxiety and Depression into Creativity. And I thought that was like a brilliant topic. And I'm so happy I attended it. They did record it and we'll put the link in the show note for that. She just had some really great exercises that you can do if you know because so many people are feeling anxiety and depressed in general, particularly because of the pandemic that we're in. Her main point was talking about using anxiety and depression as kind of like a framework for exploring your state of mind because she talks about how these states are maladaptive creative states. And that by really kind of going into those directions, you're really expending a lot of creative energy to stay there. So she talks about shifting that creative energy into something that is more, I guess, outside of yourself and in writing. This was an event for writers. But I think anyone can benefit from these exercises that she gives, you could do them as journal entries. And if you're not wanting to think of yourself as a creative writer, you, you know, you could do that. So really fascinating event. And I appreciate that she gave the book Cougars a shout out at the end as helpful resources. And she talked about how we've created a really positive community and just how important positive communities are
0: for mental health. So thank you, Heather, for that. And reminder to people that Heather is not only is she an amazing writer and author, but she's a therapist by trade. Yeah. Yes. Great point to mention, <laughs> Emily. Yeah. She's a she's a fabulous human being all around, but she is a professional therapist. So we um, will put two links in the show notes. We'll put a link to this event and we'll also put a link. We have a video talking with her about kind of what she was experiencing as a therapist talking to people during the beginning of the pandemic. Right. And she,
1: one of the things from this talk, and you'll see if you you watch the video, uh, she recommends writing rage haikus.
0: Oh, that's a great
1: idea. (laughs) Which are a thing. Yeah. And uh, so people shared some of their rage haikus, you know, just to get that yuck out of yourself and that a haiku could be rageful is kind of funny in general because you usually think of them as calming insightful
0: meditative type things right so (laughs) but they're also super fun to write i used to go to a restaurant in columbus called haiku it was a sushi restaurant and they had pieces of paper and pencils on the table where you could write haikus as you ate your supper and i used to take the kids and we had so much fun i'm a big fan also if you're not following heather on social media she's very funny And she's really a gifted social media person. Yeah. I highly recommend following her. I was the host of an author for A Biblio Adventure with Newburyport Literary Festival. I had the honor of interviewing Deirdre Mask about her book, The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power. I think you can still find the video on A Mighty Blaze Facebook. I'll put the link in the show notes. Eventually, it's going to be on the Newburyport Literary Festival website. I don't think they're up there yet. It was really fun. Deirdre was in London, so it was later in the day there. So she was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It was 9 a.m. for me and for other East Coasters. She's really vibrant and passionate about her subject matter and quite smart. And I really wanted to try to impart to people that she talks about this subject matter through story. It's narrative nonfiction, and it was a really good book. I thought she was just a delight. Yeah, it was, I attended the event, and I thought
1: it was a really fantastic conversation. I thought, A, you did a great job, and, thank and B, you. like you said, she was very entertaining and engaging, and, and it sounds like the book is just so vast, and encompasses so many examples from around the world and different time periods.
0: Yeah, it's really um, one of the things I really enjoyed about it is, you know, we're not traveling right now, but you really get to travel through these pages. Um, She does take you around the world and it was obviously very well researched and she talked to interesting people and she talks about everything from why they started numbering people's houses and how they did it to, you know, folks who don't have an address and what that means for them and their livelihood. And she really just covered a lot of territory with the book. And it was very interesting. And I both listened to it and read it. And I recommend both.
1: Another event I attended was one with Sarah Waters, one of my favorite living writers, and I'd never seen a live event with her before. And I so enjoyed it. This is another early morning Saturday event for me. It was 9 a.m. our time, so again later in London, and this was for part of the London Library LitFest. Sarah was in conversation with Hallie Rubenhold, which I'd I'd heard of her book called The Five, which is about the victims of Jack the Ripper. It's the first biography of these women, and it doesn't involve him really. The focus is on them, and it apparently really gets rid of a lot of the mythology around these victims and dismissing them as prostitutes or sex workers. Anyway, Sarah Waters, superstar, I love her. And it was really fun to hear her talk about her research and talking about historical research and women lives and queer lives and history and just how little there is written and where you find information, which is quite often in prison records or legal records, arrest records because any woman or queer person who is out of line gets arrested in Western cultures and others throughout history. So that's where you can find information. But one of the great points she made was that how people in different times of history looked at figures for different reasons. And she gives the example of Queen Christina, who we've talked about in the past, my namesake, and that in Queen Christina's day, the main reason that people were looking at her And that she became such a figure was that she converted to Catholicism, which was hugely shocking to people. They didn't care that she cross-dressed and did other things. Their focus was on the fact that she converted because religion was so much more important back then. But now when gender and sexuality studies and expressions are so important to us, we look at her and her cross-dressing as the main thing we're interested in um, and not so much her conversion.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, isn't that? And then one of the
1: funny things was Downton Abbey came up because one of Sarah Waters' books, The Little Stranger, deals with one of those great country homes kind of crumbling after World War II because the labor force just wasn't there to maintain them anymore. And so she talked about Downton Abbey and that she loved it, you know, that it is nostalgic. It's very cozy. It portrays capitalism as benevolent. And she said, quote, it's quite horrid, really. (laughs) But she loved it. So she loves it. She watched the whole series twice. (laughs) So that's kind of funny, too, because I do really enjoy Downton Abbey. But I agree, it can be quite horrid, really. Mm -hmm. So my favorite novel of hers is one called Tipping the Velvet, which is about these two women in late 19th century London. And she brought up the fact that one of the early novels that she read that dealt with two women in love in the 19th century is called Patience and Sarah by Isabel Miller. I have a copy I'm showing to Emily. And this is a novel about a historical woman who was a painter and her companion. Her works weren't found until the 1940s, uh, but she lived a very quiet life in the country with her partner. So Sarah loves this novel. And she said she wanted to write a similar novel that was queer but urban and that's one of the reasons that tipping the velvet came to be in addition to it was the subject matter was her dissertation focus
0: have you read that book chris oh yeah
1: patience and sarah yeah okay love this book yeah Yeah. laura and i've had it for a long time and it's it's a very charming novel about two women in love in 19th century new england It's a a nice love story, which for its time period is very different. When did this come out? Copyright 1969. Wow. You know, that's the thing, too, like the difference between a love story and a story that has a relationship. Just because there's a relationship doesn't mean it's a love story. Right. Anyway, long story short, I love this event. I believe it's been recorded, so we'll put a note in the show notes or link in the show notes, I should say, And they had a stack of books sitting in front of Sarah Waters of books from the London library that she actually used as research for some of her books because her books are very historically accurate and contextual and everything. So she was looking through these books and they're talking about them. And so I asked, uh, you know, thank you for showing these. Have you ever, did you, do you also use archives in your research? And so they asked, they asked Sarah Waters that question, which was fun to hear that you know, she did. And that's where she started talking about prison records, police records for, for gleaning more information about lived lives back then that weren't necessarily the quote, important lives that were written about right. and archives kept on. Did you have heart palpitations when she was answering your question? I was so excited. And I think like, I think I kind of like found the key to getting your question asked on these types of events is wait until they've actually asked a couple questions. Like, don't ask your question right away. Kind of hold back and linger and then keep it super short. Yeah. Like just one or two lines so that the person who's hosting the event and actually doing the interview can scan it and quickly see a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of an accidental key finding measure because, you know, they were in into the weeds of asking some of the other questions. So yeah.
0: well, I'm glad try I'm... that if you have a burning question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when I did the event with Deirdre, you know, you have this you're looking at Zoom and you have this question panel come up and things just are popping. And you know, you're trying to think of your next question to ask the author, but you want to engage the people who are asking questions. And it's, you know, it's definitely multitasking. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to stay focused that way. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why
1: we ask Laura to kind of facilitate monitor our zoom chats right. that we do so that we can be engaged with everyone who's attending, but also not miss questions that come in through the chat or, you know, let people in who are arriving late or something like that, or who get booted off and want to get back in.
0: Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. It's a whole new world, this Zoom world. So I attended an event on Tuesday with Maggie Shipstead talking about her book, Great Circle with Beth Ann Patrick, who's also known as Book Maven. And it was a great event. So this was launch day for Great Circle, May 3rd. No, May 5th. And it was through politics and prose. It was a really interesting conversation. Some of the takeaways for me is um, Maggie said she worked on the first draft of the book for three years and three months. It was 900,000 words. Wow. (laughs) And she had to cut it by a quarter. Now, I have to say, not that this is about me, but i have this huge work project that's requiring me to do a ton of writing and yesterday i toiled over one sentence one sentence for an hour and wow. i looked at my clock and i was like 900,000 words she wrote 900 that like oh my god but she credits in her acknowledgments she acknowledges scribner which is a piece of software that a lot of authors use. She said in Mm -hmm. this event, it costs $50. It's so worth it. She said, I could not have written this book without it. And I've never looked at it, but I guess it's a way that you can kind of track your writing and the research that goes to different portions of your writing and things like that. Yeah, I use Scrivener and I
1: love it. It's great for creative writing and also nonfiction writing because you can drag different documents and images and links in and have things organized. Like it's it's really like having a binder of research that you can shift around and everything. Hmm. I absolutely love it. I've been using it for way over 10 years.
0: It's hmm. fantastic. Yeah. She, I mean, she said she loved it so much. She had to put it in the acknowledgements, <laughs> which I <laughs> thought was great. Yes. <laughs> um, for list, longtime listeners who were also books on the nightstand listeners, Ann Kingman has said that she was in a huge reading slump last year during the pandemic and great circle is the book that broke her reading slump. So that's high praise from Ann Kingman. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how the book got on my radar. And it is on my list, for sure, because it sounds fascinating. It is so well written. I mean, she is just a great writer. And she, um, between her last book and this book, she became a travel writer and was sent Mm -hmm. on assignment to a lot of places. And that really informs this book because she's been to... Greenland she's been to the Arctic Circle and you know places like that so she a lot of the imagery of the book is from her real life experience and this is essentially a big adventure story in a certain way I mean I'm not there yet I'm not very far into the novel at all but it's so far it's all that I would like to really be doing in life. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and she's on a, a big tour right now uh, because the, uh, the book just came out. So I will put a link to her website in the show notes as well. Well, the last biblio adventure I went on was a couch
1: biblio adventure. I watched the movie Who Will Write Our History. Now, this movie is based on a book. So the book is called Who Will Write Our History, Emanuel Ringelbaum the Warsaw Ghetto, and the Oying Shabas Archive. The book is by Samuel D. Cassow. And the movie adaptation was written and directed by a woman named Roberta Grossman, and the executive producer was Nancy Spielberg. And the, the movie version, they have a, I think it's like a 36-minute educational version, and then the full-length movie is uh, a little bit over an hour and a half, I think. And what this is about, have you heard of this? No. I hadn't heard about it either, and I stumbled across this while doing research for an archive project about archives of people who've been marginalized or discriminated against, and Emmanuel Ringenblum was a historian, a high school teacher in Warsaw pre-World War II. And when the war broke out and then eventually the Nazis created the huge ghetto there, he decided, who's going to tell our stories? Like, we can't rely on the Nazis, the Germans, to tell our story of what's going on. Another thing, too, was he was part of a relief group called the Jewish Self-Help where they were helping people who were made homeless, who were struggling, who were refugees. So as a person who was working in this organization, he had access to so many people's different stories coming in. And eventually he recruited about 60 people to collect information, to do their own writing, but to also collect artifacts from the ghetto of posters that the Nazis put up, experiences that they saw, that they witnessed, that they would write down. They eventually included artwork and photographs. And initially it was just documenting what was going on. And then they started documenting it to document the Nazi crimes. And then eventually they're documenting to have evidence to prosecute these people after the war was over. And what he did was he buried a lot of the papers in tins, in a basement area there were three different collections of materials and out of the 60 people who were part of this archives only three knew the location of these sites where they were putting things because he thought the fewer people who know the better in terms of if anybody gets caught and interrogated so after the war he, he was killed Emmanuel did not make it through the war um but a woman named Rachel Auerbach did survive. She was part of this archive effort. And so she and three, two other guys survived, and only one of those survivors knew the location where these were buried,
0: mm.
1: which is amazing that only one person survived who knew... But the thing is the ghetto was completely destroyed. It was just huge rubble for blocks and blocks. And they had to rely on using old aerial photographs and a church steeple that was still standing to orient themselves to where they should start digging Hmm. to find these things, to dig through the building rubble and everything. So they they found two of them. One of them is still not discovered and they think it's underneath the Chinese embassy in Warsaw that it could be there. But a lot of these materials were used to help understand the war, obviously, from the Jewish perspective and what was happening there and in outlying provinces, because, again, his relief work, he was able to get these stories from all over and was one of the first to get news out to England of the atrocities that were happening. Mm. Rebecca Auerbach, eventually she did move to Israel and became very prominent in reporting on the history of what had happened
0: and being present at trials. Yeah, her name is familiar to me. Now, did you think the movie was well done?
1: The movie was pretty good. It was hard to watch. It was part original footage and then part actors acting out scenes. It was very good, yes. I I watched the full version and not the educational version. I can imagine some scenes that they probably cut Mm -hmm. for the educational classroom. But yeah, I thought it was very well done. And it shows the importance of documenting what's going on now. I mean, I know there's stories about people creating archives in Syria during Mm -hmm. that civil war. Mm -hmm. And without those, you you do, as we know, you only get the victor's rendition of history. Or outsiders, looking in yeah but to have this this on the ground immediacy and and the book is really it's a quite thick book Mm -hmm. you know some of the things that they interview the author and he said you know you have people who are so blazingly angry at their fellow citizens who are not helping the situation and he's like after the war you would never hear of another jewish person discussing being angry mm. at a fellow jew until much later mm. um mm. and i think you and i have talked a lot about how huge stories like this of a, such huge atrocities there is a certain narrative that is established and then eventually as time goes on the more singular stories start to be told right so again that was who will write our history it is a book there's a movie adaptation made and I, I do recommend them. It's as I said, it's it's hard to watch. Yeah. But important, yeah. obviously. Sounds like it. All right. So
0: Emily, upcoming Johns, is anything on your calendar? Yes. I'm excited. I've mentioned this before, but there is an event. Um, next Tuesday, the day this episode airs, with Chris Bohelian talking to the author Wally Lamb about Chris's new book called Hour of the Witch. I'm really excited. This is through our affiliate bookstore, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, and Bank Square Books. They're both hosting this event because it's going to be a big one, I'm sure. Um, It is free, but you do need to RSVP to attend. And it's at 6 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: Yeah, I have one event on my radar. It's June 1st. It's the Lambda Literary Awards will be online. I've always wanted to attend them or, you know, any of the big awards where, you know, people get decked out and go, the Literary Awards. I think it'd be a lot of fun to do that in person one of these years. But in the meantime, I will be watching them online. And so the Lambda Literary Awards are the awards for LGBTQ writing. Right. They have categories for gay fiction, lesbian fiction, trans fiction, LGBT nonfiction, biography, memoir, poetry, uh, a lot of
0: different categories. So I'm looking forward to watching that. I also have an event on May 18th that I'm signed up for through McNally Jackson with the author Claire Fuller in conversation with Lucy Tan. Claire Fuller's new book is Unsettled Ground which has been on my radar for a long time. And it was just shortlisted for the Women's Prize in Fiction. So that pushed it up on my radar. And I thought, you know, maybe if I listen to her talk about it, I'll even be more inclined to pick up the book. (laughs) So um, I'm really excited to attend that event. What about upcoming reads, Chris? It's going to be a reread, but my
1: book group is reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Oh. Yes. That book has been on my mind a lot lately. And when we are talking about what to read, you know, everybody in the group has read it already at least once, if not more times. So it should be a fun, fun book to revisit. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be the first time I'm rereading it since reading... Uh, the wide Sargasso Sea—that is a telling of the woman in the attic side of what happened mm. earlier in Rochester's life, you know. So, and, and it has been a couple of years since I've read that too, but now I do have a little bit of that in my mind. And I, I just love Jane Eyre. I love the the mood, you know, the gothic nature of it and the landscape. It's just so moody and brooding. And
0: yeah. I've never read it.
1: Mm. Oh. <laughs> 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 it's one that you, when you ever do read it, you'll be coming to it at the right time. Okay,
0: right on. I mean, I feel like I kind of know the story, but that's still not the same as reading it, of course. I have two books on my radar. I Thought You Said This Would Work by Ann Garvin. This just came out on May 1st, and it's supposed to be a comedy, um, kind of like a road trip story. I think of it as maybe Thelma and Louise-ish, but I, that's all I know about it. Um, And then a book called Middletown by Sarah Moon. And this book came on my radar and it has a very cute cover. I'm gonna show it to Chris. It's almost like a a half eaten donut, donut, but with a car driving around it. (laughs) Um, This came on my radar because I admittedly stalk the author Amy Bloom on Twitter. She's hilarious on Twitter. And um, she noted that this book came out. She responded to the author, and the author's name is Sarah Moon. And it turns out Sarah Moon is Amy Bloom's daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I watched a little short video with Sarah Moon. The, the publisher is, I don't know how to pronounce it, Levine Querido, Querido, And um, they have like little one-and-a-half-minute, Uh, videos on their website of the authors of their books talking about their book and she said it's very much an autobiographical book and it's about a queer kid it's a YA book I don't actually I don't know if it's YA officially but it's has a young adult character and um, she's a queer kid wrestling with her gender and um, Sarah in this video says she came out at the age of 14 But it's also about that her own parents divorced around that age and she and her sister were left at home alone to fend for themselves because suddenly you go from having two parents in the picture to one, you know, and so if your parents at work, you're home alone or whatever. So I'm really curious to dig into this one and see what Sarah Moon's writing is like. I love her mother's writing. That's so fascinating because, you know, that Synchronicity again with me reading, you know, Lisa Scott
1: Laney's daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, Francesca's book, and now this.
0: Yeah, and then it's also a great segue to introduce our conversation with the author Chris Tebbets, which is coming up. And one of the things that I talk about, or I shouldn't say I, we I talked about on the episode when I talked about Chris's book, but we talk about it with Chris, is that this isn't a coming out story, which is what I believe Middletown is. This is a coming of age story. And Chris talks about the fact that, you know, there's room now for all sorts of LGBTQ queer writing and that it's, you know, a gift of the time we're at, that it can just be a story about a kid who happens to be gay. Right, exactly,
1: and just how publishing is opening up. That was a really, I love that portion of the conversation with Chris.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to say, Chris and I grew up together, Chris T and I grew up together, and we did a little bit of name dropping when we were talking, so I just wanted to say, we mentioned the author, Virginia Hamilton, who sadly has passed away, but she lived in Yellow Springs. Chris and I grew up with her her children. She was a highly decorated children's author, and Chris alludes to that in this interview. She published 41 books. She won the National Book Award, the Newbery Medal, all sorts of things. We also mentioned her husband, who is Arnold Adolph, and he is a poet. He writes poetry for children. And we mentioned the author, Suzanne Clauser, who is, she wrote scripts for Bonanza, but also is probably most well-known for her book, A Girl Named Sooner. So I didn't want us to be accused of being like Joan Didion and just, you know, dropping some names here and there. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for providing
1: some of their titles. I thought it was a really great interview. I enjoyed meeting Chris and talking with him about His books for middle schoolers, YA, he has an adult novel out as
0: well. I was disappointed that we didn't get to ask him more about his school visits because pre-pandemic he was able to go into schools, he said, about once a month, you know, and visit with kids. So I did reach out to him by email and I said... What's a cute story you could share with us about visiting a school? And he said, well, one time I, you know, like he's there, he's talking to the kids as an author, and then he said he was walking down the hall, and this little kid just starts pulling on his shirt sleeve on his elbow and said, will you come have lunch with us at the nut-free table? (laughs) He was like, sure, I can do that. And he said he and the the kids at the nut-free table had a lovely lunch together. So he's so lucky to get to, you know, talk to kids that age. I love I love young kids. So enjoy this conversation with Chris T. It was a real pleasure to have him. We're so happy to be here today with Chris Tebbets.
1: Chris is a new-to-me human being, but he goes way back with Emily. Emily and Chris grew up kind of together in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Chris started his writing career with the Viking series, which was for readers 8 and up. With James Patterson, he's the best-selling author of the Middle School series, the Stranded and Stranded Shadow Island series with Jeff Probst. Chris's first venture into gay themes for young readers was the book M or F, co-written with Lisa Papaditramou, which I just mutilated. (laughs) (laughs) But we're here today to talk with Chris about his new book, Me, Myself, and Him, recently released from Delacorte Press, which Emily loved and talked about on episode 126. Welcome, Chris.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's fun to do this under any circumstances, much less with the, uh, you know, the old home week factor going on.
0: (laughs) That's right. We were trying to figure out the last time we saw each other, and we decided it was probably when Chris graduated in 1982. Forever ago. Yeah, going way back. (laughs) Chris, we're so excited to have you here today. There's so many things to talk about, but we do want you to have an opportunity to tell listeners about your new book, Me, Myself, and Him. Can you let us know just kind of your elevator pitch about what the book is about?
2: I've never had such a hard time coming up with an elevator pitch for a book as this one, Um, but I will try, which is to say, um, this is my... um, my, it's a what I would call a sliding doors story, which refers to the 1990 Gwyneth Paltrow movie, and it follows um, one character from an autobiographical pr- um, prologue where he breaks his nose, huffing whippets outside the ice cream store where he works, um, and from there the the narrative splits into two parallel stories: one where we follow the character through the, a lie about what happened, and he stays home for that last summer before college, and the other where uh, narrative where we follow the character. Um, through the outcome where he gets busted for it and is shipped off to live with his dad, his famous physicist father in California for the summer, to prove that he's worth the investment of college. Um, And from there, I I, I wove those two stories together um, out of my own fascination for, um, you know, the what ifs of life. What if something went one way or another?
0: Yeah, it's the question we all like to ask each other, or ourselves, I should say, you know, just even with simple decisions that we make sometimes in life and sometimes the hardest decisions. Speaking of decisions, when I read this, I was like, whoa, Chris decided essentially to write two different books and put it in one. How did you do it? Did you outline? Did you just, the idea came to you and you just rolled with it? Let us know.
2: I mean, in terms of an idea, that movie, Sliding Doors, was sort of a brain exploder for me, but I saw it way back in the day. I always loved that whole idea, but I didn't set out to write this parallel narrative thing. It was gonna be a traditional YA novel where we followed the character out to California. Um, But then those sort of uh, that, um, you know, that writerly thing that before you're a writer, you think can't possibly be true, where your characters misbehave and don't do what you want them to do and all of that, that started to happen. And I was writing and writing and writing the beginning of the book, and my character would not get on the plane to California. He wouldn't leave. And I was, you know, and so I sort of did a little bit of self-analysis and I was asking, you know, inquiring of him, why won't you leave? And um, some part of me realized he wanted to stay in Ohio. And um, and from there, I don't know if I thought of that movie first, but I just decided I didn't have to decide. And I could write both um, and, uh, you know, go go at it from a more um, uh, quasi experimental uh, tactic. Uh, Also tying in my. Um, you know, as somebody who dropped out of Algebra Two in high school and never took physics, I have this late-breaking-in-life interest in theoretical physics, and this whole idea of the multiverse and the possibility that all possibilities exist fascinates me. So that tied in there as well, um, and I just went with it.
0: Yeah, it was really good and really um, just age-appropriate in a certain way, because at that age, which is he's just about to embark into the, you know, launch into life, into his college years, but everything's so big at that age, you know, like you, every small decision feels a lot bigger than it does to our, when we look at back at it as adults. So I really liked how you, you explored that in a sense by letting him take the reader, I guess, through these different possible trajectories that he could take. And looking at truth is one of those, right? Yeah,
2: truth is a big part of that. And I love that you honed in on what you just said. You know, whether it's middle grade that I'm writing or YA or anything, um, I really like when storytellers take their young characters' problems Seriously, and let those problems occupy the same relative space in their lives as the problems we have an adult that occupy in our lives. It takes the character seriously, um, and, and by extension, I think it takes the reader seriously as well.
1: Yeah, that's really great because I I do think kids' concerns get devalued so often, and that I think has been a turnoff for kids when it comes to books that are available for them to read. And I think. literature for young kids has opened up so much in the last 20 years. And one of the things that Emily talked about when she discussed the novel was how it's not a coming out story. It's a story about a, a gay young man and just how different that is from, you know, the old, just the theme of coming out that preoccupied publishers for so long, and now we can move into stories where characters just happen to be gay. Can you talk a little bit about that shift?
2: I can, yeah. It's so satisfying when interviewers hone in on the things that you care about when you wrote the book, um, and that's definitely one of them. You know, I I call him an incidentally queer protagonist, um, and the same was true of the one other YA I've written where I had an incidentally queer protagonist who had done the heavy lifting on his own sexuality before the book began when I first started writing that previous book, MRF, one of the first um, issues I really tackled uh, or grappled with as a writer for young readers is um, the dichotomy of aspirational versus realism, um, you know, reflecting the real world. And in that in that early case, it was about what kind of language are we going to use in this book? Are we going to use four-letter words that are accurate to the character, or does the story not need them? And we're going to have language that's maybe a little bit more aspirational. Um, and then same thing here. You know, I, I hope that... Uh, more and more, as you said, we're going to see more and more stories that leave aside um, the so-called pain narrative um, and get and allow our queer characters to have fuller lives in the context of a full, you know, of an entire library shelf worth of books. Um, not that those uh, narratives about how difficult it is to be young and queer in our society um, are unimportant; they're very important um, because a lot of kids still need to see that experience reflected in their stories. But I think a lot of kids also need to see. Um, see that their lives exist in a larger context than that. Yeah. Um, sometimes being gay is just, you know, it's just a one part of the story. And and that's what I personally chose to write.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, too, is I, uh, focusing on the pain narrative is so much easier for larger society uh, exactly. because one of the things is once the gay st- coming out story is told, we're just like everybody else. You know, we have the same boring problems that straight people have. Wow, what is revelation, right? So um it's just such a refreshing time to be a reader of Queer Lit because for the longest time I quit because I was tired of the coming out narrative and the obligatory gay bashing scene. Um so I'm just happy we're moving beyond that finally in the in the publishing world.
2: And the same thing is happening in what I would call the you know the kid littosphere Um the same thing is happening for other historically marginalized populations and writers, you know, black writers are, are calling out for stories that aren't just about Martin and Rosa Parks and slavery and, uh, you know, Jewish authors are calling out for non-Holocaust related narratives um, and, and letting letting all these characters step into a much fuller world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, part of why Chris, this is going to be confusing for listeners, Chris T can write this book is because we are where we are in society today. And it really, it, it allowed me to have a conversation with a young person. I mean, he's 22, which to me is now is a young person, but anyway, where I said, you know, is this your experience? I was telling him about this story and I said, do you have friends that, you know, they're just gay and their family knows they're gay and the teachers know they're gay and they're dating, you know, a boy and it's all, it's not even a Topic of conversation. And he said, Yeah, I do. And and I said, And was there coming out, and it, was it, you know, a big issue in the family or was it seamless, you know? And it, it just allowed me to have a conversation with him because I feel like growing up in Yellow Springs, which Chris and I were lucky enough to do, sometimes my v- imagination of it is skewed because we grew up in a very accepting town. And it was accepting back in the 60s and 70s, you know, and I think the rest of the world, I like to think, is catching up to that.
2: Yeah, it was a fabulous place to grow up. It was a different time. I mean, not to uh, muddy the waters even more, you haven't mentioned the fact that the character's name is also Chris because right. <laughs> you know that was my nod to the fact that this wasn't entirely non-autobiographical for me. Um, however, when I was the age of the character, I was completely closeted, including mostly to myself. Um, and it speaks to the fact that, you know, we, we can have every opportunity in the world, live in this fabulous liberal town with my fabulous liberal parents, um, but until you're ready to, you know, to face up to it. Um, All all those advantages don't necessarily accomplish anything. But um, I'm guessing that you also saw that the book was a bit of a valentine to our hometown as well.
0: Indeed, that was a fun part for me. It was as if I was uh, biking around Yellow Springs again (laughs) as a kid. So thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, I really need to visit
1: Yellow Springs. I tell you, everyone who's lived there has loved it. Sounds like a wonderful place.
2: It's a very special place, and in you know, again, in my world, right, to have grown up um, alongside the kids of Arnold Adolph and Virginia Hamilton, who's the most decorated person ever in my industry. If nothing else, it makes for a great name drop on my part. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. So, Chris, speaking of Virginia Hamilton and kids writing, um, some of your work appears in the juvenile section of the bookshelves at the library, and some in the YA. What's the difference? When you sit down to write a book, Is it you alluded to language earlier. I mean, is that part of it, the cuss words and things like that? Are there other things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been able to answer this question for a long time, and I almost suspect that my answer is now outdated. But I'll tell you what I've been saying for a long time. Um, For me, I I think of um, some people say YA, young adult literature, and they think all novels for all young readers. And I break that down, as you sort of did, I call middle-grade fiction, which is the bulk of my career, being very loosely for 8 to 12-year-old readers. There are plenty of, you know, 7-year-old readers who, who read up and um, a lot of, you know, 8th and ninth graders who have enjoyed my middle-grade work. Um, but separately, I think of YA, young adult fiction, as being for ages 12 and up. Um, and even within that, my first one was real squeaky clean. The one we're talking about today, Me, Myself, and Him, was a little more R-rated. Um, you know, and, and that's going to be appropriate for... Uh, not specific ages, but for specific readers. Every reader is going to be a little bit different. But it does break down along those lines. And even in working with publishers, you know, it can become as technical as when I worked on this castaway story, Stranded. Um, I wanted my oldest character be- to be 14, and they said, no, she has to be 13. Otherwise, they're going to shelve it with the young adult section. Hmm.
0: Oh, interesting. So just a lot of it is just dependent on the age of the characters as well. That
2: makes sense. Yes, And the rule of thumb is that kids generally like to read up. They like to read about characters who are older than them. Um, And then again, super generally, you're going to see a little bit less subplot in middle grade fiction than YA. Um, And uh, I also think of, of middle grade as being a little more externally focused. It's for readers who are looking out at the world in a whole new way for the first time in their lives. And I think of YA as being a little bit more inwardly focused for readers who are beginning to look in in a whole new way in their lives. Um, But you could point to two million books that contradict everything I just said.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really loved I started reading uh, Save Rafe. Is that his name? Rafe, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, to talk about the age of readers, I'm 55 and I got immediately drawn in and really enjoyed his voice I thought it was really down to earth and it just carried me along. And I I can imagine reading it as a younger person. Can you talk a little bit about how you keep in touch with those younger voices and the younger attitudes and age groups that you write for?
2: Yeah, voice is definitely one of the stickiest wickets in writing for young readers. You know, It's the thing that some people say can't be taught. It's the thing that editors are most looking for. Um, and for me, I've always said that like my emotional bat phone goes back to those fourth and fifth grade years. I was a generally happy kid. Um, and for whatever reason, I just I have sort of vivid emotional memories of that age. Um, I'm also, you know, it's also sometimes just a matter of mechanics. I am for, for people who read these, you know, they're relatively pop culture driven. They're light. They're funny. People will have no idea the amount of arduous work that goes in at the sentence level, at the word level, to to pin down the voice. You know, I I realized along the way, for instance, that Rafe would never say, it seemed as though. He would always say, it seemed like, even though that's grammatically incorrect. You know, and I I made some really specific choices about that along the way. And then, but the rest of it, yeah, it just comes from, I would say, just sort of a gut level kind of of thing.
0: And they're so funny, like, how do you keep, like, I'll talk like Rafe, how do you, like, keep in touch with, that's not how he talks, I'm kidding. How do you keep in touch with the humor for kids that age?
2: I, you know, I I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I mean, this actually dovetails with what I meant to say on the previous question as well. When I started writing this series, I went to my local um, elementary school and I interviewed a lot of fifth and sixth graders. Um, in groups, in small groups, and individually. And what I heard back from them over and over was the the props have changed. School has changed, you know, in terms of technology, in terms of the way maybe they structure their day. But when I asked them about their social lives, about their romantic lives, about how they felt about school, it was stunning to me, the degree to which they told me back, you know, echoes of my own sixth-grade experience. And, you know, howsoever things change, they also remain the same. Um, and in terms of the—I'm sorry, you were asking, was it humor you just asked about? yeah. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. I mean, you knew my father. He was a, a clown adult, no, a clown child in an adult's body. <laughs> Very <laughs> funny guy. Um, and I think that was just in my DNA. And then I've also just noticed on a technical level, for if this even answers your question, um, I wouldn't have anticipated this, but the humor is the last thing that drops in on those books. I write the plot. I write what happens. I rewrite what happened. I rewrite what happened. And then somewhere along the way, I almost want to say it it mimics the the human experience where it takes a while to have some perspective on something and be able to have a sense of humor about something that happened to us. And I think that happens for me in micro in the writing process. And it drops in at the end.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And then how does the illustration occur? Because it seems like the illustrations really mimic the humor, or is it, you know, like, so do you discuss it with the illustrator? or Do they read it and then do the drawings to suit?
2: They they receive a manuscript from us where we include detailed, um, usually detailed, illustration um, notes. Uh, So because James Patterson is James Patterson, he gets to run this However he likes, um you know most authors don't have that much leeway with the illustrations they, they they like to make a little bit more room for the illustrator to do their own imagining and their own storytelling, which is not to say that that doesn't happen we'll We'll send off a manuscript with a a brief note, and our illustrators our brilliant illustrators will come up with this two page spread that's filled with what I call grace notes and, you know, lots of other ways of telling the story and lots of other jokes. If you stop and look closely enough, like Mm -hmm. one of those old Richard Scarry books that I used to love looking at.
1: I was just going to say, I was looking at the, this book. So, uh, save Rafe is the sixth book in the series and it's illustrated by Laura Park. Yes. And one of the, you know, talk about those little details. Um, Like in this early scene, I really love this. It's um, Rafe is talking about his childhood, and there's a scene where he's escaping from the crib or falling falling out of the crib because he's talking about falling. And he's saying, dial 911. And there's a little teddy bear on one of those little kid Fisher-Price toys and the teddy bear saying, I don't have fingers to dial. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes me smile as an adult and would definitely make me smile as a kid, too. Um, So that kind of detail with the illustrations, like you're saying, it just really adds to the, the story as a whole and the humor.
2: And it shows you why artists are artists as well. You know, they they really, she really, especially in this case, where the conceit of the book is that the art you're seeing on the pages is the character's art. Rafe is an aspiring artist. So more than ever, she really had to occupy his imagination and and expand the character from inside with her art. Um, and it's a huge treat to, you know, one of the quirks of this is that I send off my work and then I don't see the finished book until it comes out. So then I eagerly, you know, pour through and, and look at all of Laura's or whoever, Joe, Joe Mike's illustrations and... um it's, it's a lot of fun to, to then see the book in that context.
0: Wow, how long does it typically take from when you, I mean, I'm assuming, do, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. Do you and James Patterson come up with a story idea and then you write together, you write, then it goes to illustration, tell us the process.
2: He comes up with um, a story idea, characters, and a detailed chapter-by-chapter outline, which he then sends to me. Sometimes he'll ask me to give the outline another pass. Um, Sometimes it's really ready to go. Um, And from there, I'll usually have five or six months on a middle-grade novel. And once a month, I'll send him one-fifth or one-sixth of the book. Uh, he'll get on the phone with me. We'll talk about how it's going. If there are changes, or you know, if we want to renavigate in some way, he's also you know busy enough and practical enough that he he has said to me, if something's not working, just go ahead and change it. He, he's not too precious about his own stuff. He's very creatively generous, but he also has great story instincts. Um, so at the end of that six month period, he'll have a finished manuscript from me. He'll rewrite it to his own satisfaction. Send it off to the illustrator. Um, so from the, my first day of writing to when the book comes out, I'd say it's probably about 18 to 24 months.
1: Now, talking about storytelling, I, I read in your bio on your website, you talked about, you know, TV watching, your, your theater acting career. You did then some work in theater in New York City uh, from, I guess, behind the stage. And then you were involved in that, uh, uh, is it Peter? Horrifying stories from my childhood. Um, But can you talk a little bit about, like, the development of your own sense of storytelling?
2: Yeah, it it was funny because when I had to develop an author website, that was the first time that I actually saw my whole story, you know, I had to sort of figure out what was my story, how did I come to writing, um, and that was when I recognized my own, the, the, the full circle-ness of what happened for me, because, you know, my love of storytelling started at Yellow Springs Public Library at a very young age, and I devoured books as a kid, I've never been such a big reader as when I was a kid. And then in middle school, I, we had a you know we had an amazing arts program in our schools there, and we had a good th- community theater. I got heavily into theater. That became I became like the theater guy, um, and uh, in a rare moment, and I also fell in love with movies. And had a sort of a rare moment of practicality before I went to college and thought, you know, a college campus is a great place to get some hands-on filmmaking experience. So instead of majoring in theater, I did that. I spent four years learning that I did not want to make movies for a living. <laughs> um, fell back into theater. And I loved doing theater, but the the thing I talk about in workshops is I did not love the business of theater, and I didn't love getting myself out there and doing all the things you needed to do to make a living. So I left, I I had no more reason to be in New York City, um, and every summer I had been coming up to do summer stock in Vermont, and every summer when I had to leave Vermont, I was like, why don't I live in Vermont? (laughs) But I moved up there and then found my way back to writing in this sort of full circle moment, and it's one of those moments in your life where you're like, oh... You know, it, it, it's Dorothy waking up in bed at the end of the movie and being like, oh, I had what I needed from the very start, which was this love of books and storytelling. And I love the, you know, the the autonomy I have as a writer with the whole story. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's so, is there is there a big writing community up in Burlington, Chris?
2: Yeah, I mean, Vermont's a wonderful place to live. And it's a very, you know, arts driven, you know, arts heavy State even really the whole state is sort of one big small town, and I've always thought we could have a you know a dynamite writers conference just in Vermont.
0: Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that's so interesting about where we grew up in Yellow Springs. It's you know I think when we were growing up it was actually much bigger. It was I think the the um, they had over four thousand people living there. Now it's down in the mid three thousands. I think it's a village.
2: Oh, okay, I didn't know that.
0: But. Per capita. I mean, I don't have a statistic, but there were a lot of writers and there were famous writers that lived there. I mean, my next door neighbor for 20 years was Suzanne Clauser.
2: That's who came to mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, um, you know, I was just wondering if you've landed yourself in a community where you feel the same way, where writing is really, you know, held in high regard and you have peers around.
2: I, I do feel that way. I mean, I remember when I, it's very it echoes the Yellow Springs thing in some ways. I remember moving to town and watching some local public access show where a children's author was being interviewed, Tanya Stone, and I was like, oh, she sounds interesting and accomplished. I wonder if I'll ever meet her. And of course, now she's one of my best friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's you you Great. Know, that
0: <laughs> um,
2: yeah, there's a, there's something called Nerd Camp that they do every year. It's a it's a national event. E- each state has their own, and Vermont has launched it, and um, there are other events, but that's one that sort of brings children's authors from all over the state uh, every spring or did until COVID and hopefully will again.
0: That's great. Do you do you think you'll ever or maybe you have and I just don't realize it, but step outside of writing for kids or do you really feel like that's your sweet spot?
2: Um, That's my sweet spot. But, you know, my other soundbite is I've always admired and aspired to be uh, more chameleon than specialist. Um, I like doing lots of different things. You know, there's arguments either way. Um, But in fact, last summer I had my first adult thriller out with James Patterson as well. And um, I I knew I would enjoy that project. I didn't know how much I would enjoy it. So I'm thinking a lot about um, writing for adults. Uh, But if I had to choose at the end of the day, there's something about that middle grade fiction that just, I call it my heart work.
0: Mm,
1: That's great. Wow, so you wrote the adult novel. I missed that somehow in my research.
2: Oh yeah, it's called First Case.
0: First case. I want to ask, this is probably not polite, but I'm going to ask this question and you can refuse to answer or take the fifth if you would so choose. When I started working in philanthropy, I was still living in Yellow Springs and I was really surprised because there's a curmudgeon that lives in Yellow Springs who I will not name, who rents properties to people and he is known for being a total cheapskate. Like if you rent an office space and you need to work on the weekends, the heat won't be up and he refuses to turn the heat up and things like that. But when I got involved in philanthropy, I found out he was the most generous person and he gave money to all of like the Youth Soccer League and the Arts Council. And I was shocked, I mean, pleasantly surprised. I'm wondering when you know James Patterson has been so gracious and has given so much money to independent bookstores is that something you would say is in his nature or when he started doing that did it shock you
2: um somewhere in the middle I would say i mean the his adult work that you know that was his career for a very long time um, was it it is Completely plot-driven stuff. It's you know, it it, they aren't books that are there to make a statement. They're the books that are there to entertain. And then something happened when he his kid. Actually, I know exactly what happened. Um, His kid was not a reader, and they they said to him, you know, you don't have to mow the lawn this summer, but you do have to read every day. Um, And and something started happening. The kid was in fourth or fifth grade, I think, um, and he got interested in doing books for children. And as he began to get interested in doing books for children, his Philanthropy exploded. And, you know, he's a huge proponent now for independent bookstores, um, for uh, literacy, uh, all kinds of things. So um, I, I think it came with the move into children's literature.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
2: One of the things about um, that I think is unique about writing for young readers as compared to any other area of publishing is the fact that we all have a shared responsibility to our audience. And I think that is part of what makes it the friendliest corner of publishing, if you ask me. And it makes it really it makes it a wonderful industry to be part of.
1: Well, I know we're coming kind of to the end of our time here. And there's a question that Emily usually asks of every writer before we say goodbye. I want to ask that one, Emily.
0: <laughs> is it what are you working on now? Are we allowed? Some writers have, you know, like they have very strong feelings about not answering that question and some are happy to answer it. Where do you lie on that spectrum?
2: Well, I'm going to have to say somewhere in the middle again, um, (laughs) because my superstition strongly dictates not talking about these things, but I talk about them all the time anyway. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm working on a middle grade comedy with uh, Jim, with James Patterson. Um, and I'll be finishing that up in the next couple of months. And then I have my own sort of perpetually half-finished middle-grade novel that I'm pecking away at. And the um, the elevator pitch for that one is Harriet the Spy meets Austin Powers.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> Count us in.
2: Yes. <laughs> I think that's why I talk about it, just because I like to pitch.
0: <laughs> that's great. Oh, Chris, this has been so much fun. I think, I'm not sure, Chris, but I, Chris W, but I think this is the first time we've had someone who writes YA fiction, kid fiction on. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. 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 Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we should say to listeners that, you know, Chris, he's written so many different books and so many different series. Me, Myself, and Him is the most recent that came out, I think, unless the James Patterson adult book came out after this one. Um, It's a great YA novel. I'm a fan of reading YA novels myself as an adult. Um, I like the way the stories are told and... um, uh, you know, you just step right into the story right away, which I really appreciate. I highly recommend it. And then I'm with Chris W. I just started reading one of the middle school um, series books last night, and I was just laughing out loud. Mm-hmm. And the illustrations are fantastic. So highly recommend that series as well, amongst his others. We will put a link in the show notes to Chris's website, which lists all of his books and we highly recommend that you go out and check them out.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Chris. It's great to meet you.
2: You too. This is really fun. Bye.
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>